Geopolitics and Empire is joined by the Raw Egg Nationalist, author of The Eggs Benedict Option. He was recently featured in Tucker Carlson's documentary, The End of Men. And he also produces Man's World magazine at mansworldmag.org, which is free. His work is amazing. And welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Ren. It's a pleasure to be here. As I was telling you before the interview that I'm a latecomer to raw egg nationalism, and I'm slowly getting into it. And maybe just to start, if you could tell us briefly whatever you like about, you know, who is the raw egg nationalist, uh, a bit about Vince Gironda and the movement, raw egg nationalism, you know, how long would you say the movement has been around? Yeah, it would be my pleasure to explain. So um, the movement's been around really just since since around about the beginning of 2020. That's certainly when I when I kind of got behind the hashtag raw egg nationalism. So I, I'd been I'd been lurking around on Twitter. I was a follower of Bronze Age perverts, but I haven't really hadn't really posted anything up until that time. And um, I just uh, I just got behind this hashtag in a in a major way. Um, people were talking about Vince Gironda. People were talking about uh, slonking, which is the technical term, slonking raw eggs and. Um, uh, I just I took the ball and, and ran with it, and and here we are, nearly three years later. Well, three years later, yeah, three years later, and um, it's become a it's become a bit of a phenomenon, really. But um, the the central insight really behind raw egg nationalism is that a nation is only as strong as the people of which it is composed, and you only need to look around today to see that people are very very ill indeed, and. Uh, that has all sorts of implications for politics and for the health of politics. Um, but eggs in why eggs in particular? Well, eggs are eggs are a superfood. Eggs are a a much maligned superfood. You know, there's been a lot of propaganda. Uh, most of it, vast majority of it, false over the last sort of fifty to seventy years about eggs, about how eating eggs is bad for you which is nonsense. Uh, they are, as I say, a superfood. They're one of nature's great superfoods. Um, they have a they have a kind of symbolic value because what they represent is they represent everything. They represent the opposite, basically, of everything that we're told we should be eating today. They are the opposite of, um, of the kind of plant-based, corporate-controlled foods that we are told are the future of food. They're easy to produce they're cheap and they're incredibly nutritious and there's really no way that you can um there's really no way that you can control uh the production of eggs in the way that uh these big global food producing corporations which are which are gobbling up more and more of the food supply want so you know um you can't patent an egg this is what i i like to say but you can patent a plant based egg and that's one of the reasons why corporations now are moving into the end of breaking into the new uh, ownership envelope of plant-based foods and genetically modified foods is precisely because they can control them and that's a theme that runs all through my all through my work is is um corporate control and and break and how to break it uh but to go back you talked about vince gironda and yes vince gironda is almost he's like the founding well not the founding father but he's the He's the sort of um, he's the kind of symbolic father, I suppose, of raw egg nationalism. He was a maverick bodybuilder in the 1960s, and he had he trained all sorts of incredibly famous bodybuilders, Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance. Uh, the first ever Mister Mister Olympia, Larry Scott, 
He also trained a, a who's who of celebrities, Carl Weathers, who played um, Apollo Creed in the Rocky films, uh, Cher, Clint Eastwood, all sorts of people like that. He had a gym in, in West Hollywood called Vince's Gym. But one of the things that he was uh, totally against was the use of anabolic steroids. He was a, he was a very, a very, very vocal uh, advocate of natural bodybuilding. He came up in the 1940s and the 19, well, late 1940s, 1950s, early 1960s was when he really made his name. And that's when steroids didn't have, although people were using steroids by that point, they didn't have the prominent place they would, uh, they would later occupy in bodybuilding. Uh, and eggs were his alternative to, uh, to anabolic steroids because of their, they're quite, um, the huge cholesterol content, and that's one of the reasons why eggs have been have been so um, uh, egg consumption has been so disparaged by the medical establishment is because of the cholesterol content. But actually, that is that is only a good thing. It's not just the it's not just the protein; it's the cholesterol that you want because cholesterol has an anabolic effect. And um, I mean, recent scientific studies have actually shown have actually substantiated some of Vince Gironda's theories about. Uh, egg consumption and muscle gain. So uh, there's a scientist called Steve Reichman, for instance, who did studies about cholesterol consumption and whole egg consumption. And he showed that there's actually a closer correlation between consumption of cholesterol and muscle gain than there is between consumption of protein and muscle gain. So we tend to think, oh, you need to eat as much protein as possible in order to build muscle. And yes, that's true. But actually, it, it what it looks like is cholesterol consumption is even more important. So that means that means that you shouldn't be like a lot of a lot of bodybuilders. You shouldn't be throwing away the egg whites. Um, you should be uh, throwing away the egg yolks rather than just consuming the whites. You need to be consuming the egg whole, and you need to be eating fatty, uh, nutrient dense animal foods. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell de-googled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. Yeah, and... Your book, uh, I think, is very important. Again, I highly recommend uh, the Eggs Benedict uh, option. I got it straight from the publisher in the electronic 
version because I'm down here in Mexico. It takes a while to get physical books. And um, you, you, I, I've kind of gotten tired about reading about the Great Reset, but your, you know, your focus on food and politics, it was a really fresh approach. But more importantly, very motivating. It is a real kick in the butt. Uh, for me, and you know, after we finish this interview, I'm going to go work out and eat some, <laughs> eat some eggs. But um, to get your thoughts on the whole Great Reset and globalism and what we're up against, you start, if you want to tell us briefly, you start with the sort of deep history and the deep context, which I think is important. Uh, Plato, who basically, Plato's view was uh, pretty oligarchic, uh, totalitarian, you know, his, his view of politics, and that there was an original Great Reset, you know, what we're going through in some ways is not new, it's almost like a cycle. And one of the aspects of the original Great Reset was to remove meat and protein from the plebes to keep uh, them, to keep us weak and domesticated. So if you want to just uh, briefly touch on uh, the the original Great Reset. Yeah, of course. So the book, the, the preface of the book is about a very short uh, section of book two of Plato's Republic, where Plato Socrates is talking to two of his companions, Glaucon and adamantus about about the origins of society basically and they start talking in hypothetical terms about how a society might come together and you end up with plato socrates positing this idea that actually a perfect harmonious society would have to be vegetarian because basically if people start eating meat uh then their temp i think he, this is what he actually these are the, the words he actually says he, their tempers will become inflamed and they'll start to desire more than they have they'll start to essentially to revolt against their humble lot um so the book starts with this with this idea that actually there's a very very ancient understanding of the relationship between diet and social control so even as far back as you know, 330 BC, 340 BC, whenever Plato wrote the Republic, uh, social planners, and I consider you know, philosophers are social planners, Plato you know, is, is talking about how you would plan a society. So as far as I'm concerned, that makes him a social planner. Um, social planners knew that you could alter the 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 very nature of a society and 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 how it worked by making changes to the diet of the ordinary people so i mean that's a pretty that's a pretty striking idea and it's one that we see echo echo down through the ages to today to the great reset but when i talk about the original great reset what i'm actually doing is i'm actually going even further back in time to the agricultural revolution so that's the basically the transition to settled agriculture so fixed field agriculture domesticated animals as well um in the near east about sort of beginning about 10,000 years ago let's say so um i make the book is based on a comparison between what happened then in the neolithic in the agricultural revolution and what the globalists uh want for want for the world today so the neolithic revolution was a total social transformation and initially what you have or before the 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 uh, neolithic revolution what you have is you have uh small bands of 
mobile hunter-gatherers moving around the landscape, uh, following migratory patterns of animals, of birds, uh, of, of um, mammals, uh, fishing, foraging. But, 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 but fundamentally what you've got then is small groups of people moving around. You don't have cities or, or towns or any kind of urban settlements. You might have proto-settlements, but they're probably not inhabited all year round. You know, you might inhabit a, a settlement site, say, for a few months because it's in a good position to catch the migration route of, uh, of, uh, of gazelles or something like that or antelope or whatever. Um, but then what you have with the with the agricultural revolution is you have the emergence of the first urban settlements and the first states. Um, so really what we're talking about is we're talking about a, a social transformation that is built on a transformation of the way that food is produced and distributed. So you don't get states, you don't get these early states without grain agriculture because grain agriculture is the only way that you can in the Neolithic is the only way really that you can produce a surplus for taxation. And that's what states are built on is, is surplus extraction by an elite. So, I mean, hopefully you can see some of the, perhaps of the, of the parallels already emerging between what happened then and what, hap what is, what is planned to happen today with the great resets. So you've got a, a food transformation. And today that is a, a transformation from animal-based agriculture to a totally plant-based or almost totally plant-based diet for the world's population, for the 10 billion people who are supposed to make up the world's population in 2050. And off the back of that, then you have a total change in, in every other aspect of our lives from the way that we, the way that we live and work um, to the way that we're governed. So, you know, I mean, what what the world economic forum and 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 these globalists want is they want for basically for corporations to to take up take up most of the functions of governance so um these corporations that are going to be producing food and uh, distributing it and they're going to be producing food because the kinds of foods um that are envisaged to feed this uh population of 10 billion are foods that will be totally within corporate control so we're talking about new varieties of gmo grains and legumes and the thing you have to understand there is that any kind of gmo product can be owned by patents and that's why corporations like them and then you've got all sorts of novel these things like novel proteins uh, lab grown meat again you can patent that because it's a because it's a special it's a special process um that can be owned so you've got a totally corporate-owned food supply, and then um, uh, just corporate government, corporate governance, basically of every other aspect of life as well. But it's but it's built fundamentally this whole this new edifice, this new social, this whole new sort of social pyramid, whatever you want to call it, is built on a transformation of food, just like the agricultural revolution ten thousand years ago. So I, I, I draw out in as much detail as possible the the very clear parallels between these two processes and i and i try to suggest that actually um we're seeing we're seeing the unfolding of a very very ancient logic a very very ancient logic which was expressed as i say in the preface by plato that you can alter you can plan and alter a society by changing the way that food is produced and consumed 
And I like that you use as a basis, you cite in your book, uh, James Scott's Against the Grain, I believe, A Deep History of the Earliest States. Yes. I've had I've had that book on my wish list for many years now, and I guess I'm going to have to finally uh, buy it and, and, and read it. But uh, it's really good. It's really good. And. You know, it's it's this current great reset, this new great reset. It seems like technology is the game changer. The whole digital uh, infrastructure that's been you know really borne out since the Second uh, World War, DARPA creating the internet and GPS and you know everything that we have today. And in, in your book, you you call it global corporate government. Uh, this is something I've been looking at for the past two decades, especially as a conservative Christian. You know, this idea of world government and with the technology they have today, they can achieve 100% planetary control of, you know, every geography on the planet. And then that would entail, you know, the, as you're talking about food and economy and people like complete, like nothing we've seen in history. And, you know, just, just a couple of days ago, you had uh, Brazil's president Lula in the White House sitting with Biden openly <laughs> calling for world government, for world governance. Uh, and he, he used the phrase world go uh, world governance and global governance and to force all nation states to obey this world governance. I mean, they're so in our faces now. I also posted a clip that got uh, went viral on Twitter, when almost 2 million views now of Lula saying that the social welfare, uh, Bolsa Familia offered to poor Brazilians now will be cut off unless they get vaxxed. And he even said... If you get if you got to take ten or fifty COVID vax, I don't care. Uh, but if you don't, you're going to be cut off. And so, you, any further thoughts you have regarding their plans? I mean, they're openly talking. In January, they met. Uh, they were talking about no cars for us in the future. Um, you know, taking away our property. You cite Michael Recknewald in your book, who's been a guest on my program. And oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, how, how serious do you take take their their project and you know any further thoughts on on, on what they want to do oh i i think it's i think it's real i think it's definitely real i, I don't i mean one of the things that i try to stress in the book is that look i'm not i'm not a conspiracy theorist uh although i uh, of course i hate that term because of the way that it's used polemically and is used to you know has been used to discredit people since the assassination of john f kennedy but that's another point you know i i'm not all throughout the book I am referring directly to um, easily accessible sources. You know, any all of the claims that I'm making about what the World Economic Forum, you know, want, wants to do with 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 uh, the global food supply, or what corporations are doing in order to, um, uh, you know, sort of capture capture the food supply. This is all this is all easily accessible. Uh, material that you can find, and, and so if you don't believe it, you can verify it. And I, I think that it, I think that there's a dangerous tendency when we talk about the World Economic Forum, for instance, to to turn the organization and especially Klaus Schwab into some kind of sort of um, all powerful kind of secret cabal. Um, I'm I'm not sure how much that is true, and I'm not sure what power, if any, someone like Klaus Schwab really has. Nonetheless, I do think that to the kind of things that the World Economic Forum has been talking about for a long time, all of these sort of dystopian dystopian uh, pieces that they've been putting out for a long time, including uh, you know, most famously, Welcome to 2030, uh, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better. That's a very famous, very famous 
think think piece from uh, 2017 i think that it's real and you know the the fact that basically every world leader you care to name is parroting their stuff and they're all going to davos and all that sort of stuff uh should give us should give us reason to believe that this is that this is real but i mean one of the things that i have been talking about recently that i think is very interesting and that people perhaps don't appreciate enough but really should start to appreciate is uh how important migration and in particularly what's what's being called climate migration is going to be to the social transformation of the great reset so there's this i've been writing for american mind you know the the claremont institute for a while now and i did a review recently of this absolutely insane book called nomad century by gaia vince who is a who is a basically a world economic forum approved uh science writer science popularizer and um basically the argument of the book is that because climate change well because we know climate change is going to be totally catastrophic and there's nothing that we can actually really do to prevent it from being a catastrophe uh that means that large parts of the world mainly the third world are going to become uninhabitable within a period of decades you know we're talking 20 years and uh and you know large parts of the of the central belt of the earth the most densely inhabited part of the world are going to be uninhabitable so we know that that's going to happen so what we have to do in the west this is our obligation uh not only because we are the most uh developed uh of the world's nations but also because we are the worst or have been historically the worst polluters um we have to encourage all of the people living in the areas of the world that are going to be affected by climate change to move to the west now so that's billions of people and the book is the book is you know just is just arguing that case and it, i mean it's a, it's a pretty flimsy argument that's that's easy to take apart um and it sounds mad you know how how can we how can we accommodate 10 billion people which is what the world's population is going to be in 2050 according to projections in the global north in the small number of countries you know in, in north america canada northern europe uh uk scandinavia russia how, how can we accommodate all of these people how can we accommodate 10 billion people but that is the argument that she's making anyway this this idea that that is what needs to happen and and that that is what is going to happen is really starting to gain ground now so at the world economic forum's last meeting at davos a month or however long ago it was al gore said um in one of his uh, slightly sort of bizarre more bizarre and unhinged kind of rants he said what are we going to do when one and a half billion people wash up on our shores it's going to totally destroy our um totally destroy our ability to govern ourselves and he he didn't actually sound too unhappy about that prospect so i mean increasingly what i think is that climate migration massively massively increased migration is going to be used as a wedge to drive the great reset basically that's what i think and i think that people should be paying attention to this 
to this narrative, this developing narrative about climate migration and how it needs to happen now in order to to prevent loss of life and suffering further down the line. Yeah, as you say, some of their um, ideas are nuts. I remember a decade ago, uh, they had the COP, uh, UN COP meeting, I think in Cancun, somewhere here in Mexico, and I was reading some of their white papers and they were discussing forced uh, relocation. I'm like, are, are you nuts? So like, you want to put, put, put out this idea that you can force me off of my property to, you know, the Western part of Mexico, just because mm. y'all, y'all say, and it's almost like th they want to herd us into these urban globalist smart cities. I saw the other week, uh, article out of China where they're building these massive, ugly cement apartment complexes. And that's where they're sticking all the, all of the pigs, like these pig farms and these like, yeah, I saw um, that. and it's like, it's kind of like the, what they want to do <laughs> with us. And just, uh, sticking with the American mind, uh, I, I've had on the podcast as well, James Poulos of, uh, American mind who does great work. And you just published uh, a piece, uh, yesterday you you co-authored and i thought this was interesting we we've heard of jordan peterson's recent um uh, idea that he's gonna well he's gonna in london i think in this fall uh, it's he's gonna bring together two thousand plus people to form an alternative uh davos uh, a sort of anti davos and you posit that it's not an antidote to globalist globalist chaos maybe if you want to just tell us briefly your thoughts on jordan peterson's idea yeah so yeah so this was uh this is a piece that i co-authored with uh my good friend john mcglean who writes regularly for american mind and for other a uh, multitude of other publications actually he's very prolific um so yeah we 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 uh banged our heads together and came up with this piece and and basically i mean i think that jordan peterson is just doing what jordan peterson does best which is talking to an audience of people you know i mean that is very much his modus operandi now right is to to gather an audience and to and to spread his message or to spread a message a positive message or what he considers to be a positive message and i mean i just i think that we've reached a stage now we've reached such a critical stage now that talking isn't enough and i don't i mean what i say in the in the article is that actually the only thing that seems to have worked thus far is america first nationalism under donald trump that's really that's really the only the the four years of the trump presidency are really the only major setback on the road to global governance we've seen thus far i mean okay other countries have have um have resisted to some extent countries like iran hungary china russia but but really nothing nothing um none of them have done anything that's that's, that's proved anywhere near as as effective or as as um sort of worrying for the globalists as what trump did during his the four years of his presidency even though he was so effectively neutered in 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 so many different ways the the even the small things that he managed to do were had had his had his globalist opponents in in absolute uproar and you know they did absolutely everything they could to try and sabotage his presidency so my argument really in the piece is that look we 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 know the arguments against globalism and uh in america there is already an uh, pre-established um uh 
demographic of at least 73.6 million people who voted for Trump, who believe in America first to some dis to some degree, some obviously much more than others. Um, what we need is we need a return to America first. We don't need more talking. We don't need we don't need to glorify Joe Rogan podcast on the evils of globalism. We need an effective leader to start doing the things Trump was doing in his first term and do them better, do them more effectively. That that's how we that's how we fight the Great Reset. Yeah, the hour is late, I would agree. And mentioning Hungary, by the way, I saw this week, uh, Samantha Powers of USAID is out there in Hungary. And I was uh, yeah. you know, preparing the ground for the for the next color revolution. Absolutely crazy. And um, you talk about Dugan in your book, Alexander Dugan, and maybe just to get your thoughts on the philosophical and ideological nature of of uh, the threat and this global liberal system, people call it as well, uh, gay, the globalist American empire. I was reading your Man's World magazine yesterday where there was a hilarious um, uh, section talking about um, basically this. I mean, the, the globalist American empire is going around the world, overthrowing countries that have traditional conservative values and then trying to shove down their throats um, this rainbow fascism, as my past guest Jim Jatras uh, calls it like making the world safe for transgenderism and wokeism and all this crazy stuff and um you know any further thoughts you have on on this and i kind of do as an american myself i appreciate you know the constitution and a lot of americana but when i study world government it seems that you know the liberal nation state is actually one way towards globalism or world government because they talk about a world federation as as basically the conception of world government where it would only be possible via nation states uh, to be connected together uh, into this sort of fake democratic global system. So, so in some ways, the, the nation state lends itself towards world government. But um, as you mentioned before, if we have strong men managing properly the nation state, we can prevent that. But yeah, and, and any thoughts on Dugan and uh, you know the global liberal system? Well, yeah. So I use Dugan in the book really. So he wrote a he wrote a short. Um, a, a pretty short little book or little uh, book was published of his thoughts about the Great Reset called The Great Reset versus The Great Awakening. I think it's a series of, um, might be an, an article that he wrote and some and some interviews. I think it's published by Arctos. But um, uh, I, I mean, I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with, I've read some other of his work, but I'm not a, like a Dugan scholar or anything. Or a, uh, So what i really take away from dugan and from from this great reset book is the is his intellectual genealogy if you will of the great reset and he traces the ideas of the great reset the 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 idea that basically it's a it's a kind of final dissolution of all forms of all forms of um previously meaningful identity like the nation um and even perhaps what it is to be human, because of course, transhumanism is a big thing that's been pushed and is being pushed by the World Economic Forum and by globalists and has been pushed for some time. Um, but he, he traces the Great Reset's genealogy through liberalism back to the Middle Ages, back to this uh, debate that took place between medieval theologians in the universities of Europe, uh, and the debate is basically over 
the existence of uh, universals, and it, I mean, it's quite a it's quite a convoluted sort of um, it's quite a it's a very very technical debate that took place. But it basically it basically revolves around the question of whether or not there are actual there are actual real categories within the world, or whether whether basically meaning and identity are arbitrary, and although. Um, Although in the short term, then the idea that there are actually real meaningful entities in the world, um, one, then in the long term, the view, the view that there aren't, which is known as nominalism, uh, and it's known as nominalism because basically nomina, that's the Latin, that's Latin plural for, for names, uh, nomen is the singular. And, um, uh, basically what it means is, the names that we give to things are arbitrary. That's it. You know, it's like they're arbitrary convention. Uh, they don't have any in existence independent of our of our sort of conceptualization of them and uh, custom. Uh, so this, the emergence and the eventual longer term victory of this idea of um, nominalism is, is what actually kind of gives birth to. Uh, the modern liberal world order it, it is responsible for the it's responsible for the reformation in some sense which is the great schism that occurred in christianity in the 16th century yes more or less initiated by martin luther and from then on it develops into after the fracturing of of christendom it develops into liberalism into this um idea that that the the greatest good for society is basically the liberal is is basically the liberate the liberation of the individual from the constraints of tradition that's progress you know you got, that's the direction we're moving in we're moving away from away from all of these arbitrary medieval uh conventions of the past um forms of identity religious belonging all that kind of thing and so uh, so that's liberalism and then what do you get after liberalism well you get the great reset eventually where having liberated uh humanity from all sorts of more or less all of the kind of arbitrary conventions of the past you end up uh in a position where what, what you're doing is liberating humankind from humanity itself and that's transhumanism and that's the that's the sort of agenda of of today is liberating people from gender um liberating and liberating people from what it means to be a human being so so dugan sees a very very clear intellectual genealogy running back from the great reset to the middle ages and i think that that's a very very i think that's a i think that's a striking idea and i think it I mean, it's a grand idea, but I think that what it does, among other things, is allows us to see that actually, I don't think that we can fight the Great Reset by going back to liberalism. Liberalism isn't, we, liberalism created the problem in certain respects because it was, well, liberalism itself didn't create the problem. You know, it, the problem came through liberalism, but liberalism is one of the forms that it takes. And so actually returning to that doesn't, we we're just a few steps back on the road rather than road to globalism rather than being off it for good so 
I mean, that's really what I take away from Dugan, and I, and I think that that is interesting, and I think it's I think it's a fruitful way to engage with the Great Reset rather than rather than just seeing the Great Reset as something that's been cooked up by some uh, ultra rich people in Davos or at the Club of Rome. Um, uh, you know, it, it's it's something much deeper. It's it's a kind of it's a civilizational trajectory that we have been on for a long time, and um, that means that that we've got to do something major, major to change. You know, it's not just a, it's not just a minor correction that we need. We actually need something far more substantial. Yeah, and the road that liberalism is is taking us down. I mean, I view it as like suicide, self destruction, and just yes. this week. I mean, looking at some of the consequences. I mean, I almost fell off my chair this week in Spain. I'm reading. They've just legalized bestiality. Uh, you have this this Yale Japanese scholar telling yeah, that was mad. That was mad. The elderly in Japan to go kill themselves. I'm like, what? And in Argentina, I'm reading thirty percent dec- decline in births, which is a global trend, and they chalk it up to the primary causes of the legal abortion and and feminism. I mean, it's like we're we're just going to blow up. We're we're just it's it's civilizational suicide. And you touch on. Putin, you know, R- Russia, you talk about Russia as being a bulwark against this. And yes, I'd, I'd agree, but I'm still very confused. And I asked my guests this, and I, I'm on the fence. I don't know. But when we talk about Putin and Xi Jinping and, and China, and it does seem that many countries, you know, including Hungary and others you've mentioned, are trying to preserve their social systems, heritage, and, and, and whatnot. But then I can't quite square. They have also implemented part of this great reset technocracy especially the COVID stuff you know biometrics qr codes health passports and so i'm trying to square sometimes you know it seems like putin is defending the world uh, other times it's like what are you doing vlad <laughs> and then, uh, have you thought about that you know how, to, how do you square that yeah i don't know that i can square it either i think i think that there are i mean Dugin is russian right Dugin is a is a russian ultra nationalist if you want to call him that he's been called other things as well i mean he he is very much on the side of um on putin's side uh so i mean i think that he i think that the picture that he presents of what he calls the great awakening so the great awakening is this sort of grassroots organic response to globalism to the plan for world government that has arisen around the world in various different places so you've got you know the the trump the maga awakening in the us you've got um russia under putin china under xi jinping orban in hungary salvini in in italy and broader populism in europe farage in britain all that kind of stuff um uh i mean he 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 presents all of that as being well, he basically says that actually the, all of these different movements, although they're disparate, it can kind of unite together to prevent to to present a glo- uh, um, a global united front against globalism. And I think that that, as I say in the book, I think that that is, I think that that's optimistic uh, uh, in the extreme. And yes, it is. I don't think that the US can probably, especially now after the Ukraine war, even under Trump, can really put its differences with Russia to one side. I don't know that the US can put its differences with Iran 
and other Islamic regimes to the side either, or even with China, to be honest with you. I think that what we might end up with is is a kind of detente between all of those countries and 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 some sort of uh, cooperation but it will still but it will always be suspicious cooperation that's what i would say but but yeah to 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 go back to your initial point about the about all of the technocracy and the covid response and yes i mean it has been it has been baffling it has been baffling and i yeah it's 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 un, it's un, it's unclear how to interpret it i don't really know whether it's I mean, you have all of these elaborate theories about, you know, sort of um, people playing 4D and 5D and 6D chess. I don't, I don't, I don't really uh, place much store by that. I, I, part of me just thinks that, in in large part, the COVID response, the COVID response. I mean, I do, obviously, I think that authoritarians have capitalized on it for sure. There's no no doubt about that. But the extent to which it has been coordinated globally from the start i don't know um i mean n- none of us is privy to to everything that went on behind the scenes so it's it, it we can only sort of um guess or come to some kind of um uh sort of judgment based on what evidence we can we do have access to so i i don't know whether for instance you know somewhere like russia they implement putin implemented those measures just because at the time he thought that it was that it was for the best that it was the best way to respond to to the global emergency or um uh or whether something else was going on so i i just i just don't know but yes it, it certainly should make us we certainly do need to think hard about it it's it does raise some quite worrying worrying questions yeah difficult uh question and, and let's turn toward food and and some of the uh, solutions you advocate i think you said you don't eat grains and you talk about western price i'm a huge fan of um western price uh, foundation Fantastic. and and um I, I think i was reading about this over a decade ago and how he studied that you know the healthiest people groups ate mostly food uh meats and and seafood and butter and dairy uh, i spent a year in the gobi and uh, living in a year in mongolia where it was basically just meat and, and and dairy you know camel meat horse meat you name it and it was fantastic although i did notice on the list that uh, in in your book they they also did eat the bugs they they ate they ate uh insects and so um just uh your your, your further thoughts on on this as well as sort of the eggs benedict option which is I think focusing on ourselves now to be as strong as we uh, physically can, intellectually, spiritually, and um, because that's that's basically the first and, and biggest step as individuals and citizens and, and communities. Um, before we you know we go to the next step, as you said, the nation is only as strong as um, its citizens. So, further thoughts on on food and diet and focusing on yourself as well as you know. Uh, the fact that they've also the strong men in the past did also eat <laughs> insects. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, the, well, the, the you see the interesting thing about insects. What, well, what you could say about insects is that although traditional societies have eaten insects, or certain traditional societies have eaten insects, then it, it wasn't their principal protein source. So it would have. I mean, there is a there is a lot of protein in in insects and things like that, but it would never have. You would never have found, for instance, uh, the Plains Indians, for instance, uh, would never have derived anything other than a, a small portion of their daily cal- caloric needs from things like insects. 
uh it was bison that they wanted to kill and eat right um so yeah i mean insects are insects are a part of traditional diets around the world in some places more than others but um they then they were never the principal protein source it was always certainly in traditional societies you know where th- where where things are going well then they were definitely not the not the um not the main protein source and there's actually a very interesting article that i cite in the book and that i've talked about on twitter and in some of my other books as well the diet of the mountain men by i think it's william holston in the um huntington library quarterly or something it's a it's a historical article from the 1960s anyway and it's about the diets of the mountain men so leonardo dicaprio's character in the revenant is a mountain man these were the hunters and trappers who who ventured into the deep uh wilderness beyond the early american frontier to hunt and trap and um they basically went native and uh anyway this article is about is about their diets and the fact that they that they basically ate you know just just meat just game and and bison and uh whatever they could get their hands on but it has some interesting anecdotes about what some of the mountain men were reduced to in periods of um extreme deprivation you know so it, 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 they were always because of the because of the because of the weather and because of the harshness of the environment and they were always there was always a risk of of you know ending up in a in extremis in a in a very very difficult situation and sometimes that might mean <laughs> plunging your face into an ant hill and eating as many ants as possible in order to get some in order to get some nutrition or indeed eating the leather from your own shoes so um but yeah let's let's talk about um about diet more generally um the the western price stuff is is fantastic is really great it's the foundation it's the foundation or it has come to be the foundation of my view of diet in general which is that yes we need to prioritize these nutrient dense animal foods that our ancestors uh consumed and and thrived on and uh of course that is precisely the opposite of the of the global plant-based diet that is being the planetary health diet that's what the world economic forum calls it that is uh being proposed for us today so really i i i mean my my work is about returning to the ways of the ancestors and what we need how we can do that how we can how in order to guarantee individual health what we need to do is we need to take on and defeat the corporate uh agricultural system that is that is moving in lockstep with the globalists uh towards this plant-based future so it's very much about the how guaranteeing individual health is necessarily not just about um buying the right food for yourself but actually creating a broader political movement that can guarantee that we have access to those foods in the first place so that's the base that is the basis of the eggs benedict option is a kind of new sort of populist movement that stakes claim to the foods that our ancestors thrived on um because obviously the globalists want to deprive us of those foods it's the it's the central it's the foundation of their social revolution is is getting us to give up those foods so 
So yeah, it's um yeah the the west the western price stuff is fundamental, and I and I would say to anybody actually that if you ever read one book on nutrition, it should be Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which is his 1939 masterpiece. Uh, he was a dentist. I'll just talk about him for a moment. He was a dentist from Cleveland, Ohio, at the turn of the 20th century, and he noticed that over time that more and more of his patients especially children were coming into his surgery displaying all sorts of really quite unpleasant uh, dental malformations malformations of the jaw uh crowded teeth dreadful dreadful cavities um and what he observed that actually was that actually these these dental malformations were uh, symptoms of a kind of wider of a kind of uh, broader sort of um uh sort of crisis or, or or problem problems with their physiognomy so if you don't if you have bad teeth and a, and a poorly formed jaw then the rest of your face suffers as a result your your cheeks your chin will be recessed you'll have narrow airways um you'll have problems breathing uh, and you'll be very very unhealthy so he noticed that people's that people's dentition, which is an index of wider health, was getting worse and worse. And he hypothesized uh, quite um, uh, sort of uh, sensibly that this was probably something to do with what people were eating. And the broader context uh, of the time is that people in America were starting to move away from whole food-based diets to diets that were based on industrial foodstuffs new new foodstuffs that were being produced ref using refined flour um refined grain products added sugars um uh novel vegetable oils and and seed oils um these are foods that people had never eaten before in any quantity so people were moving away from the traditional sort of diets that people had eaten the traditional whole food locally produced uh diets so what western price decided to do was to eventually was to go on a a globe trotting trek and look for traditional societies eating their traditional diets and see how things were with them and what he discovered was that contrary to what you might believe and what you might be sort of um, told by the kind of popular narrative, actually in traditional societies like, for instance, among the Maasai Mara in Africa or the Inuit in, in the high Arctic, um, high Arctic Canada and Alaska or among the Torres Strait Islanders off the coast of Australia, the small islands, um, then traditional peoples eating traditional foods displayed what he called perfect health uh as as displayed in their dentition and facial facial development so um you know they had properly formed broad jaws broadly formed cheeks um uh beautiful teeth that weren't crowded at all uh, no cavities uh properly formed noses and airways you know they were they were beautiful people and actually he one of the great strengths of the book is that um or one of the the great selling points of the book is that he has pictures of people's faces and of the insides of their mouths to illustrate um 
uh, the points that he's making about about how diet is essential for health and for facial development. And he basically, I, I think what he ends up coming up with is almost like a series of basically iron what you would call iron laws of nutrition you know these are these are as close as you could get to sort of scientific laws about what human beings should be eating uh it's an it's an it's an amazing book it's an amazing book and it's incredibly informative and yeah i would i would reckon i would i would recommend it to anybody to read certainly if you read one nutrition book then that's what it should be yeah and you, you mentioned a few other things in your book like the turner thesis this idea of uh, yes. the american frontier and it's funny because i'm from chicago illinois originally but growing up i somehow intuitively that that's always been a part of my worldview this sort of americana i i don't know if, uh, you know this this grit this frontier-like lifestyle and world view and i don't know if i got it through osmosis or just reading and you know that's one of the good parts of uh the u.s uh so you know th that's interesting and you also talk about towards the end i think th there's nowhere to run from this world government you know if you were in the soviet union nazi germany you you name whatever totalitarian system going back centuries you could always escape to another country but what they're planning there's going to be no escape i mean here in mexico they were running qr codes in some states uh you couldn't buy food if you weren't injected with pentagon yeah, crazy juice i mean so everywhere from all over the planet and you also talk about the dacha system i was living in kazakhstan a few years ago and hanging out at kazakh and russian and, and, and even cuban dachas there were a few cubans left over from the cold war living in huh. in kazakhstan and we were, <laughs> we were sipping on vodka eating plov and bishparmak and, and russian barbecue and it was fascinating to see what they've done and, and what you detailed in your book i mean they have a grow short growing season and i i saw them ferment and can a lot of their fruits and vegetables and put it in their cellar and the entire long winter they'd be whipping out um these uh the the crops that they had uh worked on in the short growing season but uh you know and any further thoughts on resisting defeating the great reset that's a good it's it's good that you that you bring up this uh idea that actually there isn't anywhere to run because that's something that that um james well i so i i was thinking basically or i i used james scott's um against the grain particularly uh, uh you know throughout throughout the book but one of the things that he talks about is the fact that actually uh for the longest time probably up until the state became the dominant political form uh in the world which wasn't really maybe until the 17th century you know it wasn't that long ago that uh more people in the world lived outside anything that we would recognize as a state than within one but for the longest time from the agricultural revolution from the beginnings of the agricultural revolution to you know maybe 300 years ago you always had the opportunity to run away if you didn't want to be a peasant and lots did lots did you know um the ranks of the ranks of the mongols and of the steppe nomads and the huns and the plains indians and uh, all sorts of other barbarian or what were called barbarian groups were swelled by a constant inflow of uh cultivators who didn't want to be cultivators anymore because being a cultivator wasn't particularly much fun um and that's actually that's one of the reasons why in the ancient world you have to understand that walls including the great wall of china and other 
boundary walls, fortified walls, were built as much to keep people inside states as to keep them out. So, you know, the, the Great Wall of China wasn't just built to keep out the Mongols. It was also built to keep in the settled peasant cultivators who might otherwise want to run away and become something more akin to a nomad. Um, but of course, all of that is gone now. So there's no way that we can do that. So what I say in the book is that we have to stand and fight. You know, we, these are our nations and, uh, we've we've if we want to resist the great reset then we have to resist here and now uh not from somewhere else at some other point in in the future because there won't be somewhere else and there won't be another time when we can do it i mean the the dasher gardening thing is is fascinating and is something that we could spend you know a whole podcast talking about on its own it's it's basically this system in in russia and the former soviet union but particularly in, in Russia, of um, people growing their own food, basically. Having having small plots of land, either where they live in the countryside or, as is increasingly or predominantly the case now in Russia, because this still goes on to a large extent, outside the city. So you have urban dwellers coming out of the city to little plots of land in the countryside to grow stuff and keep animals. And it provides and has provided a significant amount of the food that Russia produces huge amount of you know like 50% of Russia's agricultural output is is uh, by value is produced by ordinary people and so what i try to do with that example i, I mean i base there's an entire chapter on dasha gardening which i base on this really fantastic phd uh that was produced in 2008 by a man called leonard sharashkin uh i i try to suggest that one of the things we can do to resist the great reset or one of the one of the alternative system that we could create would be one in which actually maybe people start to produce a bit of their food uh, themselves you know because actually it doesn't take all that it takes a certain amount of work of course and i think russians work maybe an average of 17 hours a week uh during the growing season which is only four months uh on their dasher gardens but that's half the amount of time that the average american spends in front of the television a week so it's not that much time really and it would obviously do it would do everyone good you know it would it would probably produce a, a much fitter nation um so i i mean i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to to envisage a different system a system that a system that isn't a system of agriculture a system of food production that isn't rooted in corporate control we need to we need to take back i mean i don't want to sound like a marxist here we need to take back the means of food production because the corporations that have seized them or the corporations to which we have ceded control of them uh don't have our best interests in heart and they have made us so much sicker so much more dependent and uh so much less free uh than we were a hundred years ago and um so yeah the, the dash the dasher gardening thing is a is a template i mean there are obviously differences between the us and russia uh not least of all wealth um but actually i mean one of the interesting statistics that i use in the book is that the total land under cultivation in russia by dasher gardeners is less than much less than the total area of private lawns in the us so 
you know, you've already got enough land under private control just in lawns in the US to produce a similar system if you wanted to. Uh, but the question then is political will and how you would how you would build such a movement. And that's something that I talk about at length in the book too, or I try to to start to sort of sketch out how we might um how we might create a you know a, a movement for reform of of food that would allow people to produce their own food or a, a decent proportion of their own food perhaps because there are all sorts of terrible ridiculous regulations in the US about mm. food production you know there are there are uh, uh, are areas counties whatever where there are actually local laws that prevent you from growing any food in your garden you are actually not allowed to grow food in in certain you know parts of the US in your own garden which just seems mad to me um so you can have a nice you can have a nice lawn and you can keep a keep the weeds down with with uh, plentiful applications of glyphosate but you can't grow you can't grow your own tomatoes which i mean it's just to me it's abs- absolutely mad and so the kind of laws that prevent people from from practicing small scale agriculture need to be need to be seriously relaxed or or done away with completely yeah, it's crazy. Some states you can't even collect rain water; it's illegal. But um, yeah, like Colorado, know, I think. Yeah, I was going to say Colorado. I can't recall if it was Utah or or, or wherever. But um, it all comes together: guerrilla food production, as you say, coupled with our guerrilla information war and our guerrilla resistance to world government. I, I did have one other another question. You write in your book: "Quote, I don't just mean that we should prevent the Great Reset from happening or create redoubts against if it does happen." Although those are both possibilities, uh, end quote. I've had on the podcast uh, James Wesley Rawls of Survival Blog, and we've talked about the American Redoubt. Everyone's fleeing to Texas or Florida, or you've got states like the Dakotas, yeah. Montana. I'm down here in Mexico. Um, I mean, I came here over over a decade ago. But um, how should we view? Uh, and I get what you're saying. We should fight with ev- everything we got right now. How much value do you see in preparing like a Plan B? a readout location in case we do get overwhelmed by the globalist forces oh i think there's always there's always um there's always some value in having a plan b but uh at the same time maybe believing that there is a plan b might mean that you don't perhaps pursue plan a quite as hard as as you might otherwise do it's difficult i don't i don't i don't think that there's a definitive answer to that question i think that I mean, I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen. It, it looks pretty bleak sometimes, and I do think about well, where can I, where where can I run away to? Where can I where can I go? Where, you know, to avoid this madness. But the question the question is, and again, I, I mean, we we talked about this earlier. Is there anywhere? Is there anywhere in the world now where we can truly avoid um, the madness? And maybe for maybe for a time, then there will be readouts. But how long how long they'll last? I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, it's and, and I, I tell people I've lived in half a dozen countries. I got three passports. Uh, you know, someone called into my TNC radio show the other day saying, "Hey, you know, we should check out El Salvador." Or, or and I'm like, "No, you know, tomorrow it's it's what Edward Snowden calls turnkey tyranny." I mean, you might get some guy in tomorrow, and bam, he implements reverses yeah. everything, and and all all of these. Um, at the mayor local level governors they're penetrated like where i live here the governors in mexico of the states they're completely i can document this with their it's documented i live in the resilient city a smart city 
that's financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. This is actually <laughs> in, in the official local Mexican government documents. And so um, I'm trying to get out of here anyways, but uh, just you know, one more thought. What, what, what motivation would you have for anyone listening in terms of you know, hitting the gym, getting fit and, and starting to eat right? Uh, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. I've been on and off, but now, you know, thanks to the raw egg nationalism movement, um, I'm really fired up to start <laughs> getting back into sh shape Fantastic. and eat, eating correctly. But, you know, do you have any uh, way of motivating uh, people? I think I think you just I mean, for, for me, the motivation is is to be something approaching the best possible version of myself i can be um and i think that i think that it's important for people to realize that and this is something that jordan peterson says you know you're you're not everything that you could be um and the thing is that actually it's not that it, it is difficult to make a change but actually it's much less difficult than you think it is and the thing is actually that change positive change is cumulative in exactly the same way that 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 bad things you know negative changes cumulative one bad thing happens and then another bad thing happens and you know soon enough before you know it you're homeless on the street um but actually if you can make small changes incrementally they will add up over time to something much greater than the than the sum of its parts so you know if if you can for instance here's here's one thing you can do that is uh, th that will make a big difference in your life. If you can cut out all processed food from your life, all processed food from your diet, um, that is, you have gone, you have taken a big step towards being a healthier person because processed food is, that's, you know, pre-prepared food that comes in plastic. Basically, that's a, that's a decent working definition of processed food. Um, is laced with the worst kind of industrial industrial food products like uh seed and vegetable oils high fructose corn syrup and other hidden sugars uh all these awful colorings and flavorings and uh other stuff like that um you know if you can if you can cut out processed food and start start actually cooking food for yourself and preparing fresh food made with whole ingredients um then you'll be a long way towards fixing your diet and your health and then on top of that you've just got to start moving a little bit more um you know if if you're a very sedentary person then just start just start walking just go for a walk each day um and and build slowly over time you know it's not going to happen overnight um transformation will take will take years will take two years three years four years but actually within a year or even six months you'll look back at your former self and you'll think god i can't believe that was me i am a different person now and it will be true yeah this stuff can be done quickly quickly i mean i recall many years ago when i was hitting the when i went back to um, in, in the gym just the difference you can see in just a couple months is is amazing and so yeah, we we all need to start focusing on bettering our, ourselves and, and fighting fighting the good fight. Where are the best places? I'll I'll include all of your links in the description, but you know, just for you to let us know what are your best projects and best places to find you online. Fantastic. So, uh I'm Baby Gravy 9 on Twitter. Um uh you can go to rawegnationalist.com 
which has links to all of my media appearances and uh stuff like that and then there's mansworldmag.org which is uh where you'll find everything to do with my magazine so between those three places i think you should be able to find just about everything you need yeah i highly recommend the eggs benedict option book i'm gonna have to get your cookbook you've got one uh, as well and <laughs> yeah man's world magazine is free right for the digital version and you, you yes you sell yeah. a physical version as well yeah yeah, I've started selling a physical version of each issue on Amazon. And there's also at the end of each year, then I produce a hardback annual, a bit like the Playboy annual, featuring the best articles from the year and some new exclusive content. Uh, but yeah, all of the all of the links are um, available from my Twitter website or the Man's World website. Keep up the awesome work and thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.